0: Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. On this episode of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, we have a special guest, Ken Shinoda, Portfolio Manager at DoubleLine Capital, where he manages and co-manages several fixed income strategies, as well as overseeing the team investing in non-agency-backed mortgage securities. I can think of few people who would be better to speak with at a moment in time like this for the market, just given the sharp moves we've had in interest rates, which have impacted bonds and stocks, and mortgage rates being higher than we've seen in a long time, And be sure to stick to the end as I digest this conversation with our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, and share his key takeaways as well. I'm excited for this conversation. So, welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Ken. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Could you provide our listeners maybe with a brief overview of Double
1: Line and your role with the firm? Absolutely. Double Line is a a Los Angeles based asset manager. We predominantly manage fixed income, but we also have uh, some uh, passive smart beta equity strategies that have, have done quite well. We have a commodity strategy, but I would say about 90% of our, our assets are fixed income based with a heavy tilt towards securitized products, which are things like mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, collateralized loan obligations. We have uh, about $95 billion under management. And what is your role specifically with the firm? I know I mentioned the bio,
0: but how would you explain that to listeners?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I am a, a portfolio manager across a variety of our products, especially those that are more focused on mortgage-backed securities. I also had the Secure structured products committee, which oversees kind of the asset allocation process on our our securitized-focused strategies.
0: How did you get started on this career path? How
1: did how did you get to this point? Uh, you know, I wanted to get into something real estate related coming out of school. Uh, I had a couple of interviews. I, I actually was interning at Trust Company the West TCW, which where many of the double I employees came from and, um, just happened to stumble onto this role. Never didn't like come out of school thinking, Hey, I want to trade mortgage-backed securities. It wasn't really <laughs> something that was, um, pushed on the West coast. I think East coast schools are more, you know, investment banking trading, um, focused. So, you know, luck luck have it. it's pretty big uh, asset management community out on the West Coast with you know a pretty big pe- presence, especially in Southern California, with you know Pimco, WAMCO, Capital Group out here. So there's actually a pretty big fixed income focus, at least in the in the Southern California area. Great,
0: and we've talked a couple times already about mortgage backed securities. How would you explain those to listeners, or maybe people who've read The Big Short and have some misconceptions about what they are and how risky they could be?
1: Yeah, well, if, if you go back a, a long, long, long time ago, before uh, the, we created the government-sponsored entities, Fannie, Freddie, and Jeannie Mae, uh, mortgages, if you went to a bank to get a mortgage, it was always going to be floating rate, a adjustable rate mortgage, because uh, the banks didn't want to take on such uh, long-duration risk. And uh, what happened was Fannie and Freddie were, and Jeannie Mae were put into place to try to get the cost of debt down for Americans to buy homes in a goal to you know, increase home ownership or help more people get into homes. Um, and they introduced the 30 year fixed rate mortgage and then they would package up those mortgages eventually and uh, create bonds backed by these mortgages. So you can basically buy a bond that's government guaranteed that's whose cash flows come from these mortgage backed securities. Um, and so instead of taking on credit risk, what you're really taking on is um, prepayment risk, right? If borrowers, if rates go down, borrowers have the ability to refinance without any cost, really. Um, and if rates go higher, then they won- the refinancing activity slows down. So you have this kind of like uncertainty of how long your investment is. Is it a one-year bond or is it a 10-year bond? It all depends on the prepayments through time. So instead of sitting around and worrying about credit risk and default risk, you're really sitting around and worrying about the direction of rates and what that means for refinancing activity. And so
0: Direction of Rates is a, is a great place to go. You've been doing this for a while. How would you characterize the investment environment, the interest rate environment that we're in right now?
1: Well, it's uh, it's been the worst interest rate environment that I've seen from a sharp movement in rates higher. I mean, we've been in a bond bear market now for three years. The 10-year yield on a closing basis, the low was in August of 2020. Intraday, we were a little bit lower. In March, during kind of the fiasco when when the shutdown started, um, and we've reached new highs in August on the on the across the curve, really. So, um, it's been a really tough market. Part of it's been driven by the Fed with their reaction to high inflation, and we've seen a you know pretty dramatic um, increase in short term rates, and the long end has followed. And uh, we had a little rally as there was hopes and glimmers of. Uh, you know, soft landing, uh, uh, a soft landing, and you know, data rolling over. But what we have now is the soft landing narrative is still there, but the data is coming in better than expected. So I think a couple prints. Uh, you know, the GDP print came in strong. You had services coming strong. You had some jobs data still coming in strong, and so the whole curve is kind of shifted back up. With the market now thinking, you know, the Fed may still have more to more to do, and if they don't have more than one hike, they're at least going to keep rates higher for longer. And if the economy is strong, then why should long-term rates be so low? Maybe they should normalize up towards, let's say, four and a half, five percent 5% on the 10-year. So that's kind of what's happened, I think, over the last 30 days is the narrative has shifted from kind of this expectations of growth rolling over to, you know, perhaps growth is better than expected. And now the market's just waiting and watching for more data to come in to, to guide them.
0: So you're not to put words in your mouth, but maybe you're more in the camp then that the higher rates that we've been seeing is a good sign for the economy versus a bad sign
1: for the economy. I think in the near term, uh, it's a good sign. It means that the data is coming in positively. The data is backwards looking, though. Uh, So I think inevitably the lags will kick in and higher rates will start hurting certain pockets of the market um you know the 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 what's happened is so many high quality companies locked in such low cost of debt and so many americans locked in such low cost of mortgage rates right three three and a half percent you know maybe a year two years ago that uh it's just taking long for the transmission mechanism of higher rates to come through the economy we just have way more fixed debt than than we used to um europe is a place where the transmission mechanism is perhaps working uh, faster because more of their lending to companies is floating rate at banks. So the places where we're going to see the pain and we're already seeing pain now are pockets that are more floating rate. So commercial real estate is a good example. A lot of floating rate debt there. It's, you're talking about people that borrowed like you know 2% three years ago and now they got to roll their debt at like 7%, right? It's going to create issues. Um, bank loans, bank loans, uh, float and the cost of debt is effectively double. The average spread on the bank loan index going back 10 years is about 500 and short-term rates are now 500 basis points. So they, these these companies went from borrowing at 5% to now having to pay 10%. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Those are those lags that everyone talks about. And I think that they'll still come through eventually and it's probably going to happen sometime in the fourth quarter or first quarter of next year. So Right now, the move higher in rates, I think it's in reaction to the positive economic data that we're seeing. But I still think it's an attractive entry point. If you haven't owned long treasuries or assets that have interest rate risk, um, it's been a good thing for you. So congratulations. But now, you know, it's probably, probably one of the cheapest parts of the market. I mean, it, you, you want to buy assets when people are pricing in all the bad things. so There's not much, you know, downside left. When I think about treasuries that's kind of how it feels right now like everything bad that could happen is happening or has happened right the fed is hiking inflation was high uh foreign bar buy- foreign buying is very low uh economic data surprisingly upside so it's kind of like all the bad news seems to be in last week was interesting because you, you had that um services pmi come in stronger than expected a little jump up i think it went from like 52 to 54 or something if it's north of 50 it's expansionary and the economy in the US is very service service oriented and off that news the bond market was didn't really move much it's mm-hmm. it, it's already kind of at these high levels you'd I thought you I think you would have expected another move higher in rates on that news but it kind of just settled in so the 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 big headwind right now is the supply there's just a ton of treasury supply coming but if you get any data surprise to the downside come kind of Q4 or maybe Q1 in 2024 I think that could ignite a pretty um pretty strong rally in rates um so the 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 the, the thing to worry about is really you know does growth stay stronger than expected if we grow our way out of this right the no landing.
0: Yeah yeah absolutely so um would would you agree that the fed is much more influential in determining short term rates and the market is much more influential in determining like 10 year yields
1: yeah i agree with that i think that's accurate
0: So maybe back it up and and help our our listeners understand what makes the 10 year yield move in either direction. What, what, what does it mean when it's moving up or when it's moving down?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's different ways to um, models that have come out from different participants to like estimate what the fair value for the 10 year should be. You know, one of them is um, what is the neutral rate of interest? That's neither accommodative or restrictive, right? The R star and, um, You know, that's, I think, the the first layer. So let's just let's just throw a number out and say that's like, you know, two percent. Right. Then um, sometimes people say, well, then you need to layer in what long run inflation will be over that 10 year horizon. So let's call that, um, you know, that's another, you know, two percent or so core CPI gets back down to that level and then some term premium. Maybe that's 50 basis points. So that would get you to like a four point five percent 10 year treasury yield you get the neutral rate plus some premium for inflation over 10 years plus some term premium and you could argue over the term premium maybe it's supposed to be 50 maybe it's supposed to be 100 if you think it's going to be 100 then then you should think 10 years going to 5%. Um, now on the flip side there's you know there's buying from um you know pensions and there's buying from um, money managers and other institutions that kind of can drive the fair value below that four and a half number we just came up with, things like QE, right? That's why we got to such low levels is that the the buying outside of those that are just looking at that fair value coming in, maybe it's lack of supply, maybe it's foreign buying, and so on and so forth. So part of it's driven by kind of expectations of inflation through time. And then part of it's just driven by the supply and demand of bonds that are out there. And that can be um, that can things like QE can affect, affect that, right? So
0: that first two uh, percent that you called um, I, I was picturing in my head as almost like the neutral rate. Yeah. Uh, what what determines that? What would cause that to be higher or lower? or is that
1: just fairly static across time in that assumption or that, that model? That's the big debate upon upon context <laughs> right now is you know are we in a new world of higher inflation where the neutral rate would need to be higher? Um, whereas if you go back to like the last 20 years, pre COVID, let's call it when we were in this like world of secular stagnation, where there was arguments that maybe that neutral rate is, l- is much lower since we're living in a world of lower growth, lower inflation so on and so forth. So depending on, you know, how things shake out and, and what the future looks like, maybe that neutral rates higher. What are some things that could make inflation and growth stay higher? Um, There's there's like the three Ds I call it. It's like demographics, right? You've got the we've had a a smaller workforce every year going back, you know, last ten years because the baby boomers are retiring. We also stopped immigration pretty aggressively too. So demographics are part of it. You got defense spending, right? Governments are definitely spending more on um, on defense, and that could be inflationary expansionary. We've got um, spending on. Decarbonization, right? There's going to be trillions of dollars spent on decarbonization. There's infrastructure spending needs to happen in the U.S. There's all this, all these uh, sources of potential growth that are coming that, in theory, could keep growth higher, inflation higher. And this is not a bad thing for the economy, but it just means that rates will probably have to be higher. And so, uh, I guess the the, the real um, truth will be shown is you know after we kind of get through the next 12 to 24 months, soft landing, no landing, hard landing, whatever, like what comes next and are these long term forces that are you know potentially pushing through into the economy going to you know keep growth and inflation higher you know in the future got it so
0: pivoting to mortgage backed securities what are you seeing in the mortgage backed securities market
1: now yeah mortgages look the most interesting they have in almost 10 years um if you look at the spread on Current coupon mortgage-backed securities, which are the bonds that are being manufactured today by the loans being made today. So these are like seven and a half coupon loans to get packaged into six and a half coupon bonds. The spread on them is somewhere between, call it like 165 to 175. And relative to corporate spreads, which are, you know, almost 100 or 100-ish, maybe a little bit wider than that. Um, It's the widest difference to corporates that it's been in in the last 10 years. It's 99th percentile, right? If you you charted it on a graph. And why is it so cheap? Well, um, mortgage products, agency mortgages are kind of like a vol product. So when vol is low, spreads are tight. When vol is high, spreads widen. And interest rate volatility is really high. So that's one thing that's caused mortgage spreads to widen why is interest rate volatility so high because the fed's been raising rates aggressively and there's a lot of uncertainty around you know long where long term rates should be based on all these things that we've been talking about and then there's a lot of supply so the silicon valley bank and signature bank went under in march and the fdic took over their assets and they've been liquidating them through time we're through about 80% of the supply of the silicon valley bank assets there's about um, 20% of the supply left, so about 20 billion left, and our traders think that they'll get done with it over the next 12 weeks or so. So that basically puts it after Thanksgiving. So I, we think that, you know, as rate volatility subsides and they get through the supply, when you come out after that supply and you look into supply next year, it's down massively because home activity, home purchase activity is so low that there's not going to be much supply, and that that'll make spreads tighten. And by then, we should have also more certainty around like the end of the hiking cycle and and rates and whatnot. So it's it's been cheap like that since the beginning of the year, really, kind of these 160-ish spreads. It got as tight as 120 before Silicon Valley Bank, just to give you an idea of like the upside. So if mortgages just tighten 20 basis points as a basket, um, they're a pretty long d- spread duration asset. They're about five years. And so 20 basis point spread tightening equates to 100 basis points of excess return you know, with rates unchanged. So if if things just normalize back to kind of where they used to trade, you have a ton of upside in mortgages, you have no credit risk. And presumably, if you if we do see a hard landing, um, that should be bad for corporate spreads and mortgage spreads are already so wide. I just don't see them widening that much. So just like treasuries, we talked about pricing and all the bad stuff. Mortgages are the same, same story. It's like pricing and all the bad stuff right now. So you're saying the spread, when you're talking spreads,
0: you're talking spreads compared to the 10-year treasury yield?
1: Uh, yeah, this is spreads compared to um, kind of a 50-50 blend of the five-year and ten-year. That's that's what we quote. And so,
0: wider, wider means you're being paid more to, you know, take that risk in a certain market where the spreads are, are wider. And narrower means you're, you're really not being compensated for the excess risk over the treasuries. So they're they're wider now. Um, I guess I have a, a dumb question. Um, you're talking about their, you know, dur- uh, duration of five years. With rates being so high, if mortgage rates come down, wouldn't those bonds
1: be prepaid maybe quicker than in another type of environment? Absolutely, um, the high coupon loans will refinance faster. So, the 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 key is to not just own a bunch of those high coupon bonds. Okay. You you yep. buy some um, low, lower coupon bonds. You kind of like blend, you know, blend across the universe to create a portfolio that has a um, a good what we call convexity profile which basically means um, you try to find uh, assets that aren't too callable, right? You, know, you don't want to own just $103 price bonds that will get called away. You want to try to like, mix, mix in some low discount bonds and create a, a portfolio that can do well in both rising and falling interest rates. And um, that's kind of the environment you're in right now is you, you can put together a pretty attractive portfolio that yields maybe not that 165 over treasuries because you're buying the most premium bonds there. But, um, you know, you can build a portfolio that's kind of in the mid 90s, probably has a spread of like 110 to 120 over treasuries that has a good upside of rates fall. Um, and you just you, you have no credit risk. And it's just um, you know, for whatever reason, the the market hasn't aggressively chased this trade yet. It's been kind of like a slow uh addition money managers are going overweight there was an article on bloomberg last week about you know a variety of different money managers and hedge funds you know playing this trade so i I just think it's going to take time to to realize the value that that's in those assets and and why no credit risk ken uh fannie freddie and jeannie mae who issue these bonds they take the credit risk of those assets right Mm. they, um, they, they, the, when they package up these bonds, usually pay a small fee from the interest. So like, let's say your loans have six and a half coupon. We take, let's say 50 basis points uh, every month. And that money goes to Fannie, Freddie, and Jeannie Mae almost like an insurance payment. And then Fannie, Freddie, and Jeannie Mae then guarantee the credit worthiness of those securities. So you just take on prepayment risk If a loan defaults. They actually buy the loan out of the mortgage trust and they pay back full principal. So you're never taking the principal risk. In fact, the defaults come through to you as a prepayment. So those are agency-backed mortgage bonds um, in that instance. There are also non-agency-backed mortgages? There are non-agency-backed mortgages. In, in that case, you, you still have the prepayment risk that never goes away, um, but then now you're exposed to the credit risk of the borrowers, um, which in today's environment we think is very low. Loans being made today are very high quality um you have to put money down you have to put at least 30% down for most non-agency loans that uh, that we see unless you're really high like jumbo prime you know then you're you're going to like your bank and maybe you can put 20% down um and we've seen very minimal losses because people have skin in the game and when home prices are up so much uh you have people have equity and they're just they're not going to walk away from that equity that was really what drove defaults during the global financial crisis is a lot of people didn't put any money down and then as the home price went down it's just, why pay this I can go you know rent for cheaper I can go you know buy the house next door for half price uh, this environment's much different if you want to, if you want to go rent it's probably about the same if not more and um you know if you're already in that mortgage you should do everything you can to you know to keep that house because that three percent three and a half percent mortgage is extremely valuable right yeah, we're
0: definitely seeing that in terms of the lack of of inventory. Ken, of how are mortgage rates determined?
1: Yeah, it's it's really determined by the price where the mortgage backed securities trade. And so you know, so um, one observation that many people have made is how come mortgage rates are aren't um, tighter uh, or lower than they are because usually they're a certain spread over the ten year treasury. Well, that spread is driven by where the mortgage bonds are trading. So since mortgage spreads are really wide, that makes mortgage rates higher. And so in order for mortgage rates to come down, holding interest rates flat, let's say the tenure doesn't move, if mortgage spreads came in, right? And people started buying these MBS that look so cheap, that would then make the, the mortgage rate available to the consumer come down as well. What's the historic spread usually over the 10 year? Something like um You know, we got to a three percent mortgage and the and 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 rates were like one fifty. So I think something like one fifty going back through time sounds about right. And now it's three plus, right? The spread? Mortgage rates are seven fifty and treasuries are yeah, four twenty-five. So it's like three twenty-five right now. And
0: you explained this a little bit, but maybe one more time since we're talking about it within the context of mortgages. Why are the spreads
1: wider now? Rate rate ball is high. The Fed's not buying anymore. There's all okay. the supply coming from Silicon Valley Bank. So in anticipation of the supply, the buyers have backed their bids up, demanding a wider spread to buy these assets. Um, and through time, we we think, you know, as rate vol comes down, as the supply from the FDIC goes away, you know, we're going to enter an environment where uh, spreads have a way to come in.
0: So this was the post Thanksgiving when you were talking about kind of working through that inventory. So, not saying anything specific, but it's possible mortgage rates may back down, you know,
1: late late this year. And interest rates could fall too, right? Um, yep. you, you, get, you get some bad you get some bad economic data, you get some idiosyncratic event, and you know you could see long rates come down and, and mortgage rates come down together. That probably happens, by the way, when mortgage when long rates come down, that means vols coming down and mortgage rates will probably mortgage spreads will probably come down with them and that'll help um, people out there looking to buy homes right it'll bring um and that that mortgage rate that's quoted out there you know if you go to a private bank you could probably do a little bit better than the conventional rate that's quoted right sure yeah absolutely how big was the fed buying mortgage bonds in all of this uh they were huge um in fact one of the things that makes active management so important when you're investing in mortgage backed securities today is that the index is uh, dominated by these low coupon bonds that the fed basically owns two thirds of. So if you think about what happened back in 2020, 21, you know, cut rates to, you know, on the front end to zero, um, the tenure got all the way down to 50 basis points in the summer of 2020. And everyone was either buying a house or refinancing at like a three, three and a half percent rate, right? At the same time, um, the reason that spreads were so tight on MBS was the Fed was buying. So the Fed, but was buying about forty to fifty percent of the float of those assets. And so the not only does the mortgage index get comprised of a lot of these low coupon bonds, but the Fed also happens to own a lot of the float. So as a if I'm an indexer. Or a, a pat, like a, a an index fund, for example, I have to go buy Fannie Twos and Two and a Halves, and guess what? The Fed owns a lot of it, and there's not a lot of it available to buy, so it actually trades tighter. So hmm. if you if you just bought the MBS index, you're going to be forcing yourself to buy some of these low coupon bonds that have these tighter spreads. Whereas if you're you know more actively managed, you can kind of try to underweight those low coupons. You want to have some of them, um, and try to buy more kind of in the belly of the. Coupon stack, or maybe some of these higher priced new, new origination bonds that have that really, really widespread we talked about. So that's why active management we think is important. You can also mix in some non agencies and sometimes pick up, you know, 100 basis points over uh, agencies. What really looks looks kind of interesting to us right now is Fannie and Freddie, they, they also package up their credit risk and sell it. It's called credit risk transfer. They're a credit linked note, uh, but your credit risk is the losses on these reference pools of Fannie Freddie origination, which Fannie Freddie origination is really high quality, right? There's a lot of high standards to make those loans. And you can buy different pockets of credit risk. You can buy below inv- below investment grade risk, and you can buy more investment grade risk. And some of the you know triple B type risk in that space is um, trades today, probably like 250 to 275 over SOFR. And so far, is it 5%, right? So you're talking about almost an 8% yield for investment grade, Fannie Freddie quality underwriting. And part of it's playing, just credit spreads are wide. Part of it's playing the fact that the curve is so inverted that mortgages are longer, they sit out the curve. And the the, the cheapest part of the curve is like the short-term rates, right? Everyone's favorite trade this year, six-month T-bills.
0: So I was going to ask you about that, just the active management with bonds, and you, you touched on it uh, a little bit. Just diving deeper, it seems like the case for active management is much more prevalent when it comes to investing in the stock market, right? Um, people uh, talk about that, I think, a lot more than they talk about how um, necessary or how much of a good idea it is to, to index in fixed income. And part of that, I guess, is what you were talking about is the, the, the makeup of the bond index is it's basically just the debt that's out there, right? And if the debt that's out there doesn't mirror what you would like in a portfolio, there are opportunities outside of kind of forcing yourself to mirror that index.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, and right now is actually the most interesting time to actively manage fixed income because there's such a wide variety of um, assets that have been mispriced. The worst time was during Q- QE because what QE did it basically not only compressed the risk free curve it also compressed spreads so there wasn't much differentiation from one asset class to the next everything was trading kind of like right on top of each other. Where oh. now if I looked at um, I know this is just like a, a audio podcast if it was if we <laughs> had a a, a a way to show people like a um, a graph we can send it to you um, it's pretty interesting it basically plots each asset. Um, versus its own spread history going back 10 years, right? Mortgages are 99th percentile. So when when we say 99th percentile, uh, it means that the spread has only been wider 1% of the trading days over the last 10 years. So the higher the percentile, the cheaper you are. Corporate bonds, IG and high yield are like, you know, sub 40th percentile right now. You've got CMBS that's like, you know, 98th percentile because of all the fears about Um, commercial real estate, and then there's other assets that are kind of sitting like mid-70s to the mid-80s. If I showed you that same chart during peak QE, everything would have been towards the bottom of it. So everything would have been, spreads would have been tight. Now there's all this like variability. So in theory, okay, corporates have rallied. This other stuff has not. So the corporates buy mortgages, you know, over time, the relationship should normalize and then mortgages will create excess return either because corporate spreads widen or because mortgage spreads come in right but when when you were in the the world of qe there was none of this you know none of this opportunity available so what you actually saw if you looked at the performance of actively managed funds versus the index the excess return collapsed right like we, one would look at that and say why should i buy actively managed bond funds because you know they're not really giving me any excess return well that was a worse environment for them if you go back to like the first half of the decade of the 2010s coming out of the global financial crisis you had a ton of volatility, rates were high. You had a bunch of like you know stuff going on with the European debt crisis, and that created all this dispersion between like one asset class trading tight, one asset class trading wide, and you could rotate across these different assets to create excess return through time. We're kind of back to that environment now with rates higher, rate vol higher, um, and there's dispersion with beliefs on you know creditworthiness of like commercial real estate versus bank loans, for example, and so I think that leads to um a more challenging environment but uh, it means that if you make the right bets um then you can create you know much higher returns relative to the index so from an active management standpoint it's a great environment um you know we don't want to go back to those days of qe those are those are good for backwards looking returns but they're not good for forward looking returns Um, but it's been a challenging market i think the most challenging thing for our business really has been the t-bills being so attractive i think we hit like record money in money markets at some point in time, I can't predict when, short-term rates will will drop, right? The Fed will cut, either it's because we're going to a recession or maybe inflation is coming down and they will go back to their neutral rate, at which point that money is going to go somewhere. Some of it will go into stocks, but a lot of it will pile back into bonds. And that's the big catalyst for the spread tightening across high-quality fixed income that I, that I see. I just, you know, I don't know when that's going to happen. It's probably not this year. It's probably sometimes sort towards of the middle or end of next year. When you'll see that um, potentially becoming coming into play, and that's when everyone will be like, "Oh, I should have bought some bonds and lost <laughs> rates." And yeah, then the money will all chase, you know, chase rates back lower. That's
0: conversations we're trying to have right now with a select group of people who do have, I would say, an elevated position in in short term fixed income or money market for for good reasons. In terms of it's it is short term conservative money, but we are trying to get them to lock in some intermediate term yields for the exact same reason uh, you mentioned D- did you have any idea when you started a career in, in mortgage back that you would get the great financial crisis qe the sharpest rate increases in a summer that we've seen in a long time it, it, you know m- maybe it's not what you signed up for 20 plus years ago
1: yeah well it's funny i i, I was teaching a class at usc um which is the university of southern california that's down the street from our office and uh i was telling these students they're mostly Juniors and seniors about to go into the workforce. I'm like, this is not a normal bond market. Like this is (laughs) this type of rate volatility. Like the two year moves, you know, twenty basis points a day. This is this is not normal. But it's you know, it's a good learning experience. And frankly, for if um, for for you know investors, I think it's a great thing that you get yields back up to these levels. Like you were just forced to go into such risky investments, and now um, you know you can sit in T bills earning five and a half. You can buy you know, high quality fixed income yielding probably like six, six and a half right now, investment grade. Um, you know, you go back and rewind the clock two years, you you have to, you have to lever up high yield to get four. I mean, high yield got to about a 3.6 yield. So to get a four yield, you have to lever up high yield, whereas now you can just get four risk free in treasuries. So I think it's a, it's a good thing for investors in the long run. It's just been painful uh, for you know, market participants that have been in the market during it, but you know, this is this is what th- this is good for the future. I think, right? And it makes the case for fixed income over equities when you're seeing yields that can compete with the long run uh, return on the global equity, which is like six and a half percent, roughly, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about treasuries a little bit uh, today so far. Do you have any long-term concerns with treasuries? Uh, You know, we saw the Fitch downgrade, which kind of echoed the S&P one from 12 years ago. Or is that more of a long-term outlook, not a
1: day-to-day, you know, investment topic? Uh, It's a philosophical topic as well, but... uh I mean, look, the, the deficit spending in the country is getting out of control uh, when you look at it as a percentage of GDP and all these different metrics, and they're gonna need to issue more treasuries in the future. So I think um, in the near term, I, I do believe that from a tactical standpoint, you're gonna make money in long rates. There's gonna be some kind of growth slowdown end of this year, beginning of next year, um, while you're make money in long treasuries. But then, you know, what is the reaction by the government to the slowdown to you know if we go into a recession like we've seen the QE doesn't work and everyone's so comfortable now with fiscal stimulus that do they go back to more fiscal and then that would mean higher deficits more treasury issuance so i think in the kind of like short to intermediate run i'm not concerned about it i think tactically we're going to make money in treasuries but then depending on what the reaction is you know you you may want to be able, may, we may want to be getting out of them right in the future uh, and sticking to short term treasury. So I think it's, it's, you know, it's hard to predict. But you know, this the deficits. You know, if you really dig into it, it's pretty terrifying. And uh, Treasury issuance has to go up to fund it. And you would think that would be negative for rates in the long run. We
0: we saw some calls and we can end on this for people when uh, the rates were near zero or at zero. People were talking about maybe issuing thirty, 50, 100 year Treasury notes. Was that is that just impractical and just you know, crazy theory
1: or did they miss an opportunity to do something like that? I They should have done it. There's a lot of countries that did. I mean, Austria issued some hundred year bonds. So, um, you know, we missed it, I guess. Right. All right. Um, last question for me, Ken, and I really appreciate uh,
0: your generosity today. It's been a, a fantastic conversation for our listeners. One of the basics we get about bond investing is why investing in commingled vehicles, a mutual fund, an ETF uh, is more efficient for individual investors than buying and owning individual bonds. And if you don't mind just walking up our listeners through that uh, as a as a takeaway.
1: Well, I think um, when you buy individual bonds on the retail side, there's usually wider bid ask probably. So you're probably paying more than you would if you got it an institutional fund. Like we're going to get have the of ch- the cheapest access to those securities, I would say that's that's one thing. And I know because I've looked at buying individual bonds myself. <laughs> uh, and uh, the other thing is diversity, right? Like you if it's just think about, you know, you, you, you want to go out and you buy like 20 corporate names and you want to get access to the corporate credit market. You know, you could have two, three names that go bust. And then all of a sudden you've got a lot of vol in your portfolio and not good liquidity. If you do it in a fund format or an ETF, you know, we're going to own... Um, you know, hundreds of different bonds in those portfolios. And and if you need to get out, you're not going to get uh hit so much on that bid ass from that one position where you're gonna get out at basically NAV. So I think um for for individual investors, you know, bond funds, ETFs, I think they make a lot of sense. You get you get way better liquidity than you would if you went into single name bonds, right? right. So stock, stock markets totally different, stocks have much better liquidity um when you when you're in kind of smaller ticket sizes.
0: Awesome. Great. Ken, thank you so much for your insight today. It was a great conversation and I think our listeners will find it very valuable.
1: Appreciate okay. it. Thanks, Sammy.
0: So Bob, just wrapping up this conversation with Ken, uh, someone you had suggested we have on the podcast. I thought it was a tremendously productive conversation. He had a lot of interesting insights that I don't think I've heard recently. What were your impressions of Ken's overview?
2: Yeah, I thought it was a great discussion. Uh, Ken is is one of the the, the top people in the country as far as being an expert in mortgages. So um, he definitely provided some good insight. Um, He got a little technical, so I'll try and just connect the dots for our listeners um, in case it went over their head. Um, Specifically, his comment on how mortgages are priced, um, he mentioned interest rate vol a couple of times. So what he means by that is interest rate volatility and why interest rate volatility matters. And he used, um, I think, the phrase prepayment risk. And it's exactly that prepayment risk. So if you think of yourself as a homeowner, when you take out a mortgage, you can refinance at any time. And that is what is the, the risk. That's the risk that mortgage investors are taking. So if you think about it, if you take a mortgage and rates are at 7% today, if rates go up to nine or 10%, you win. Like you, you locked in at a low rate and market rates are now at nine or 10, and you know, you have a, an attractive rate. If rates drop quite a bit from seven to three or four, you win, you refinance, you you get a three or 4% rate now. So for the the investor who's holding the mortgage bonds, that's the risk they're taking. They're taking the risk that mortgage rates will move a lot. If rates just stay at 7%, then they're just collecting a healthy coupon. So um, you see higher spreads relative to treasuries when the market is expecting more volatility in interest rates. And that's what's happening right now, where um, if you were to think about it, if you were to take a new mortgage right now and you had to actually pay for the ability to refinance in the future, you would pay a little more than average. You would pay more than you, you would have paid two or three years ago because, you know, I heard a, a client say um, a realtor told them, marry the house, but date the mortgage. Because the idea is take a 30-year mortgage, but you have no intention on paying that for 30 years. You're going to refinance out of it. So that, that's what um, is meant by interest rate volatility. So then just to kind of walk through his math, he said on average, you see mortgages priced at about 1.5% above treasuries. And right now, they're about 3% above treasuries. So there's a you know an extra 1.5% compared to where they were just a couple of years ago. And that's for two reasons. One, the higher interest rate volatility that we just talked about. And the second that I thought was really unique insight that Ken shared with us is supply from the Silicon Valley Bank liquidation. So when Silicon Valley Bank went under, um, the FDIC seized the assets, which were a ton of mortgages, and they're selling them, and they're saturating the market. So this is what people call market technicals, um, where the FDIC is not a a for-profit enterprise. They're just you know, selling these things to the market. And in doing so, they're pr- providing so much supply. When you think about supply demand, um, they're pushing the price down, which means pushing the yields up. And his team thinks that the, the trade has about 12 weeks left before they kind of finish flooding the market. Um, so that, that's also part of it. And I looked at the data Um, to try and quantify that, and that's like 25 to 50 basis points um, would be an estimate because that's how much that spread has increased um, this year. From If you look pre-Silicon Valley Bank to post in March, um, there's an extra 25 to 50 basis points in that spread. Um, So I thought that was some unique insight. So um, just in general, I hope our listeners... um, you know, now have a much better understanding of the mortgage market and, and find that interesting. And it also just speaks to, you know, just one of the, the many ways to invest. In, and we own double and total return for a lot of our clients. And it, it takes unique risks um, that now you understand what risk you're taking and and, and how you um, get a return for taking that risk.
0: Great. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a fascinating conversation, as did you. And I did learn a lot about mortgages and fixed income. Anything else, Bob?
2: No, I think that's a pretty technical uh, podcast, but hopefully people uh, find it interesting. All right. Thank you, Bob, for jumping in at the end and helping uh, clarify
0: some points. Have a great week. You too. Thank you. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.